If you would turn in your Bibles, interestingly, to Matthew, the seventh chapter. And I want to focus on verse 28 as a beginning point. I've been speaking to you off and on for a number of weeks on Christ as the cornerstone upon which we are built. I think it goes right along with Brother Luke's message on seeking the rock, digging for the rock. When you find that rock, when you find the teachings of Jesus, when you find the words of the Lord, it is something that you want to build upon. And it's interesting to me through the years, uh, different people have found the rock at different times in their lives. Some of you may no doubt have grown up here at Bethlehem and been exposed to the teachings of Christ and seeking to build your life on the rock. And then there are those maybe that have come very late in your life and found the rock and found the truth. And it, even in late in life, it's amazing how the Lord, it doesn't matter when you start building on the rock, it's still the rock. <laughs> and so we've been talking about how Paul said to us that we are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And I've been using that as somewhat of a theme in several of these messages. And this morning, we want to talk from using as a beginning point, Matthew 7 and verse 28, and talk about being astonished, the word astonished. Let's read in verse 28. And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now, the word astonished there, if it does anything for you, it's the Greek word ekpleso, which means out of something to flatten. So whatever the source of that's being talked about here, it flattened them. And the source, of course, we know was Jesus, and it was his words. It's very important to point out that they are marveling over his doctrine. Now, there are some places in the scripture, if you'll search the word out, where they, mar- they were astonished or they marveled at his works. I want to focus our comments this morning on the times that they were astonished at his doctrine. And you'll hear today, there's a lot of disdain and a lot of uh, things thrown at doctrine or teaching. Like, that's just not that important. It doesn't really matter what your doctrine is as long as you're sincere. You know, things like that. And listen, nothing could be further from the truth. If Christ said, my doctrine is mine and it matters, then it needs to matter to us. And I submit to you that with digging deep and searching, you can find it. The the truth of God is there. So there are are about ten times that this word occurs, and all but one of those times, astonished, there's about ten times it occurs, and all but one of those times it is connected to Jesus. But I think it's important that we understand the impact that his teaching and his works had on the people he was talking to. He has just finished teaching them the Sermon on the Mount. And I will tell you of the occurrences of when the people said they were astonished at his teaching, this is one where they were just blown away by what he said. And it all had to do with their conduct as citizens in the kingdom of God. I've referred to the Sermon on the Mount before as the constitution of the kingdom of God, where he speaks of the blesseds, and then he speaks of many different things. It's, it's, he's talking about the, his law, the law, and explaining to them more fully what it means. So when it says in verse 29, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Okay, what was different about Jesus' teaching 
as opposed to what all these other scribes and lawyers and Pharisees were teaching. Well, I can point this out to you. There's a lot of things. Number one, he's God and they are not, you know. But it's very, if you read it and you say, well, what was different? If you'll notice again and again, six or seven times, the phrase, Jesus says this. He says, but I say unto you. He says, you have heard, you've been taught this. And Jesus then qualifies it and says, but I say unto you the following. Uh, you could look at examples. One that comes to mind is where he says, you have heard that it's been written, thou shalt not commit adultery. And that's what the law says. And then Jesus goes on with authority and he says, but I say unto you that a man or a woman who looks upon another to lust has committed adultery in their heart. That blew their mind. You see, that, blo- that blows the legalist's mind because it go- the reason it just befuddles the mind of a legalist is because the legalist is all into the outer action. You know, as long as I've got the outward part looking good, then I'm right with God. But Jesus penetrates beyond the outward action and he goes to the heart of the matter. And he says, you've been told and taught that as long as you don't commit adultery, the act, well, then you're good with God. Everything's good. You've got the checklist checked off. <laughs> But Jesus said with authority, but I say unto you that if you look upon another to lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. And all the legalists started, you know, sweating and thinking, what? (laughs) I I haven't committed the outward act, but how can you control what's going on in the heart? You see, Jesus says, but I say unto you, this absolutely flattened them. It says they were astonished at his doctrine. This is the son of God explaining what his doctrine means. And the whole two or three chapters there for the Sermon on the Mount, the constitution of the kingdom, is about how we live in the kingdom of God. How we should conduct ourselves. And listen, I'll just be honest with you. You say, well, does the kingdom of God and the constitution of the kingdom of God have effect on its citizens? There are ways that you can see whether it does or not. And one of the best ways to see whether or not the kingdom of God is having an impact on the citizenship, the citizens who are kingdoms of God, is you can look online. You know, what are people posting? What are people Twittering? What are people Facebooking online? You know, if, if you see people out there posting things that are against what the kingdom of God teaches and preaches and what Jesus says here, then they're not living as citizens in the kingdom of God. You see, it doesn't mean anything to them. If it means something to us, it not only will affect how we interact with people on a day-to-day basis, it'll affect what we post online, whether we rant on something or whether we post inappropriate pictures of ourselves or things like that. It will, if you want to know if it has an impact, uh, and listen, you say, well, I'm going to go home and start checking up on people. You better check on yourself first. You better look back on your posts and what you have posted and what you have liked and what you have not liked. Somebody posts an inappropriate picture of themselves or of something it's clearly against the kingdom of God and five or six people that are citizens of the kingdom of God and trying to live they like it are you kidding me (laughs) how can you like something that's against the very essence of the kingdom of God you see you say to brother Tim you're ranting now maybe I am (laughs) but it makes the point doesn't it what you like what you dislike what you post what you twitter what you facebook whatever you put on there it's it's a real thing that you know facebook is real twitter is real you know whether you like it or not it's there and it's probably here to stay for a long time unless the world power goes out which might be a blessing but anyway you know it, it it's a real thing what are we liking what are we disliking what are we posting what are we saying it 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 tells us how we feel that person feels about the kingdom of god 
See? Ten times the people were astonished at Jesus. Seven of those times, seven, you could count them up, at least seven times they were astonished at what he taught. Here's one of those places, the Sermon on the Mount. In Luke, the uh, second chapter, you don't have to turn to these. You can write them down. I'm just going to breeze through them very quickly. In Luke, the second chapter, in the 47th verse, we find Jesus as a 12-year-old. <laughs> He's a 12-year-old, and he is, a, they, he is astonishing the doctors and the lawyers. And he astonished his parents when they came up on the scene and saw him. They've been looking for him for three days, by the way. And he's in there teaching the doctors and the lawyers. He's 12 years old. Now, that does not mean uh, moms and dads and 12-year-olds, 11-year-olds, all those, and tweens and all that. That doesn't mean you're going to go home and instruct your mom and your daddy. Okay? You're not God. This is the Son of God instructing people when he was 12 years old. In Matthew 22 and 33, Jesus gives... An answer to the, to the Sadducees question. You say, I've never heard of the Sadducees. The Sadducees were a group, more, more like a cult, but a group in those days uh, that were the opposite of the Pharisees. The Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection. They, that's crazy, isn't it? Because the Bible teaches resurrection. The Mosaic Law taught resurrection. But they did not believe there was going to be a bodily resurrection. And so you know what they do? They do like any uh, clever, think that they're clever, individual who wants to catch somebody in their words, they go and ask Jesus a question about the resurrection, which they don't even believe in. <laughs> and it's that, we're not going to go through it, but it's that question where they say, they, they pose this hypothetical, there were seven brothers who had, one had a, the wife and the seven brothers died and she married each one of the brothers under the Mosaic law. Whose wife will she be in the resurrection? And Jesus looks at him and he says, you don't understand the scriptures and, and you're erring in your very question. <laughs> and he goes on and speaks to them about what the resurrection is all about. And it says that the people were astonished. So all that wrangling and, and all of that talking and arguing and all that stuff was to no profit. Jesus answered the question and the people were like, oh my goodness, it flattened them out. And at Mark, the first chapter, and in Luke, the fourth chapter, that's the same account there where Jesus went into Capernaum. It doesn't tell us exactly what he said, but it says that he went into the, on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue and he began to teach the people and they were astonished at what he was teaching. I'll just give you a little hint. Uh, you can back up a little bit in Luke 4 and find out a little bit about what he was teaching in his first sermons that he preached, first public sermons. He was teaching the doctrine of election. That was pretty astonishing to the people. It ought to be astonishing to us today. In Mark, the 11th chapter, in the, in the 15th verse, it's worth looking at that one if you want to turn over to Mark 11 and verse 15. Because this has Jesus, they were astonished at how Jesus taught them to worship. You know, you, you can find any way you want to worship nowadays. Any way you choose, you can find any form of worship. You can find uh, in-person worship. You can find, uh, you can find a drive-in movie-type worship. You know, that was going on long before COVID. There were, there were drive-in uh, worship services that I read about, you know, over in, a place, in Georgia. I know there was one over there, and there's other places it was gaining popularity. You know, and honestly, whenever you go to some of these churches where they just put somebody up on a screen and broadcast that to 10 or 12 or 30 different places, you know, that's just a different, that's a different way of worship that people have come up with. Okay, you can, you can figure out, you know, you can do any form of worship. If you, if you decide you want to, I think that you could even find, you know, the cowboy worship service. I think you could sit on the back of a horse and worship. You know, any flavor you want, you can find anything you want. And, and that's one of the things I've always advocated and said, you know, if somebody says, well, I, I just don't agree with the old Baptist way of worship, singing, preaching, praying. Well, if you don't agree with it, I'm not going to hate you. I'm not going to be mad at you. But don't try to change it. 
Don't try to change it. Because the same way the, the old Baptists have been worshiping since the days of John the Baptist by singing, preaching, and praying. And it works, and it's glorious, and it's the way Jesus did it. And if you want to find another way to worship, you know, it's Katie bar the door. There's all kinds of ways to find the worship out there. Just don't, just don't mess or tinker with the way that God set up His worship. And here's why. You say, well, Brother Tim, you're just being persnickety about it. No, I'm not. Jesus was persnickety. <laughs> Jesus was very specific about how he wanted to worship. And we find Jesus at different times singing, preaching, and praying, just like we do today. And in Mark the, I think I turned too many pages. In Mark the 11th chapter, look at verse 15. And they come to Jerusalem, and Jesus went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold and bought in the temple. This is where they worship, right? The temple. And he overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. And he taught. Now listen, he's come in there and he's, he has presented himself in a very fierce way. He's not throwing lightning bolts, as, which he could if he wanted to. He just looks like a man coming in there. And we read elsewhere where he took a scourge of small cords and he, and he whipped the animals and he chased the animals out by popping the whip at them and he chased the men out and the people that were the money changers he turned the tables over i think jesus is very concerned about the kind of worship that is going on in his kingdom right and he teaches them here's this man he's probably got a little sweat on his face from running all these people out turning these money changers over you don't i guarantee if you, you want to have a stare down with jesus you don't want to have a stare down right now with what he's doing He's got his eyes on everybody that's there. You couldn't stare the Son of God down. Who's going to blink first? Not Jesus. And he teaches them. I can see him standing there with that scourge and all these people running out. And maybe he's, he's, he's uh, got a little sweat going on his face. And he says, Is it not written, My house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer? And ye have made it a den of thieves. How shameful that is, what they had turned the worship of God into. It was a den of thieves. How would you like it if you sat down in here, ladies, and you set your purse down beside you? And all of a sudden you looked over and there was a little bitty fella or an older fella reaching over there and going, whoop, pulling something out of your, stealing something out of your purse. You said, I wouldn't like that. Jesus says they were sitting in a den of thieves. They were stealing from each other. <laughs> Literally, the money changers were stealing from people by gouging and overpricing things. It was all merchandise. It was all, it was all you might even say it was just a, just a market going on, just marketing going on in the kingdom of God, in the worship of God. Jesus doesn't want that. He ran them out. And the scribes and the chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him because all the people were astonished at his doctrine. You see that? He flattened them out. When he came in there and he, he made, them, made sure that they understood what it meant to worship him, it flattened them out. They said, good grief. Now the definition of the word astonished, it literally means, as I said, for to come out of something and to mold something. Whatever comes out molds something. It also means to pound, like you would pound somebody into a, a particular mold or form. In Webster's Dictionary, it says it means to stun or to strike dumb with surprise, to have wonder towards something. You know, there's nothing like the wonder of a child, is it? And, you know, shame on, I, I've probably killed some wonder in, in, in my children before, you know, when they were having a wonder moment, you know, <laughs> maybe it was time to do chores or something, and I killed it, you know. But it's a beautiful thing, the wonder of a child. I'll never forget the first time that mom and dad took Brother Chris and us, as we were little bitty fellows, took us to Disney World. Back in the good old days. And I remember, if y'all could have seen the look on my face, I'm just a little bitty fellow, maybe, you know, four, five, six years old, and 
And I'm just, all the lights and the sounds and the smells and the structures. I mean, I, I would have bumped into anybody or walked into the wall just looking in wonder. Oh my, I was flattened out. I never knew there was a place like that, you know? I, was, I had that same experience when I went to the Grand Canyon for the first time back in the 1990s with Brother Chris. Hey, we've had a lot of wonder together. But I remember walking up to the edge of the Grand Canyon and just, oh, it's just astonishing. It just pounds your brain and you're just, you just can't, don't know what to say. Wouldn't it be great if every time we sat down and read the doctrine of Jesus Christ that we had the reaction like I had when I first saw Disney World or when I first saw the Grand Canyon? I mean, just stunned. You know why we don't? It's because of our own heart. You understand? Things get in the way. Distractions get in the way. Things scare us and we're afraid and we think too much about this and we think too much about that. I tell you, to have the wonder of a child when we look upon the truths of God's Word, that is to be astonished. You see? And I want you to think about how often out there today is the Jesus that is preached out in the religious world, is He really astonishing? Does it flatten you out for somebody to get up and say now, the Lord is wanting you to do this and He's begging and He's pleading and He's wishing you to become one of His children and if you'll just do thus and such, if you'll just, and I know there's many different ways you could say it. There's, there's some of you that are smiling at me right now Then you've heard it so many different ways in your life. If you'll just this, Jesus is wanting and wishing and, and needing you to do something. I tell you, nothing could be further from the truth and that's not astonishing, isn't it? But to tell you about a sovereign God who went on the road to Damascus and had an appointment with a wicked man who was killing Christians and was going to turn him into the greatest preacher in the New Testament, now that's astonishing, is it not? I tell you, I believe that it astonished Ananias when the Lord came to him and he said, I want you to go and preach to Paul. I want you to go and baptize Paul, Saul of Tarsus. And Ananias said, what? The guy that's got death warrants for all of us Christians? He said, go unto him. He's a chosen vessel unto me. That's astonishing. There is nothing astonishing about a begging, wishing, wanting, pleading Jesus who just can't get it done because you just won't do the right thing. I tell you, I'm so glad that the Lord Jesus Christ did the right thing, that He accomplished our salvation, that that is astonishing, child of God. And if you're digging deep and you're looking for the rock and you're looking for the truth, you're going to find it there. The rock comes true. It comes into clear vision whenever you see what Jesus says about your salvation. You see? He's not wishing or wanting anything. The Lord has never wished or wanted anything. The Lord gets what He wants and He wants you as His child. He's going to make you His child. <laughs> That's astonishing. So one of the ways that you can find the truth is if you sit back and you hear it and you go, That's just too good to be true. It's probably the truth. <laughs> or you sit back and you say, Well, Brother Tim, it takes all the emphasis off of man and puts it all on God. That's it. <laughs> It's astonishing to think that God would save ruined sinners who are worthless before Him. It blew these people away what Jesus taught about His citizenship and His kingdom. It blew the, uh, the people away what He taught about how to worship when He ran those money changers out. And He says, don't call my house a den of thieves. It's to be called a, a place of prayer and of worship. <laughs> Listen to me. Matthew 13 and 54, just a page or two over. This is also found in... Actually, I want to go to Mark, Mark 6. I'm sorry, Mark 6. This is the same account in Matthew 13 as is found in Mark 6. I want you to notice what it says. Look at verse 1 of Mark 6. And he went out from thence and came into his own country, and his disciples followed him. 
And when the Sabbath was come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished. It flattened them out, saying, From whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him, that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and of Judah and of Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. <laughs> That's something, isn't it? The Son of God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and his teaching and telling them about himself. They said it just wasn't, a, it just wasn't something that overwhelmed them. They were initially astonished, like, where is he getting this from? And then they begin to think about who they thought he was. That's just Joseph's son. Ah, it can't be anything to it. <laughs> I think that's been a lot of people's experience when it comes to the old Baptist church. Listen, God's church has been around a long time. 2,000 years. The reason we know that is because God said it will be here. And yet, even think about the growth and the blessing that we've been blessed with here over the last 20 or so years. And I've encountered people in other parts of the religious world, and they've asked me, what are y'all doing over there? What are y'all doing? And I'm like, we're just doing what Jesus said. We're singing, we're preaching, we're praying, and we're fellowshipping. That's it. And they just kind of walk away from it. Uh, that's not what they wanted to hear. They want to hear about some exciting new program or some new event or some new thing that, that would be so... Uh, Something that would capture their mind and maybe we could get more people. And just singing, preaching, praying, and fellowshipping, it just can't do it. But it does. You see? Isn't it amazing the reactions that you hear? I had this preacher years ago. We were in the, in the middle of a, of a great uh, time of growth. A great growth spurt, you might say. And this local preacher is a dear friend of mine, not a primitive Baptist. He came and sat down in my office and he said, what are y'all doing? So we, we need to know what y'all are doing over there. And I told him, I said, brother... God rest his soul, he's gone on to be with the Lord. Uh, I told him, I said, brother, you're not going to like my answer. <laughs> he said, well, I asked you, I want to know it. I said, look up your articles of faith. What do your, they were Baptist church. I said, what do your articles of faith say? And of course, we looked them up and they're practically identical to Bethlehem's articles of faith, to the primitive Baptist articles of faith. I said, let me tell you something, brother, in a loving way, I was not angry or ugly or nothing. We were very close friends. I said, we're teaching that. We're teaching the sovereignty of God. We're teaching that God is God and we are man. And it blows people away when they digest that, when they dig down to it and see it. God has saved me. God has done this for me. And I didn't deserve it. And I'm nothing before him. That's astonishing. You don't ever want to lose the astonishment of the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now watch this as we close. I ain't even got to Mark 10, which was about eternal salvation and the rich young ruler. But we'll briefly mention it. Mark, Mark the 6th chapter, as we close here, it says in verse 6, uh, verse 5, He could there do no mighty work, save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. You know, it doesn't mean that Jesus was incapable of doing something. But it means because of their attitude, because of their unbelief, because they just said, oh, that's just Jesus. That's not astonishing. Because of their attitude, their distraction on some things, he did no mighty work. Child of God. We've been greatly distracted over the last year and a half. I have. I know the things that have gone on in the world have greatly distracted me. And I come back to that verse right here and I think, Lord, am I being so distracted that you can do no mighty work here because of my unbelief? God help me. 
We get so distracted with the things and the cares of the world and the things that are going on in politics and the things that are going on all, whether it's from coronavirus to whatever the next virus may be. We get so distracted. I sometimes wonder if the Lord sits back and says, like He did here in this area, He said, well, you know, because of their unbelief, they're just not looking at me. They're just not feeding off of me. Then He just does no mighty work. God, help us. You see, we don't want to be in that position. That we're so distracted with the things of the world and Jesus is not astonishing anymore. And I didn't even get to the rich young ruler in Mark 10. In Mark the 10th chapter with the rich young ruler, it says that whenever Jesus said how hard it is for those that have riches to enter into the kingdom of God, it says they were astonished. And then Jesus explained it. By the way, there's an exclamation mark at the end of that. Jesus stepped back and he just had a slap your leg kind of moment. How hard it is for those that are, are, are trusted in their riches to enter into the kingdom of God. And the disciples are standing there. They're thinking, this guy, this rich young ruler who's done so much good, you mean he can't make it to heaven? We know that Jesus is not talking about heaven. We know that Jesus is talking about discipleship. But the apostles are thinking he's talking about heaven. Jesus slaps his leg and says, how hard it is for the, a man like that who's trusting in his riches to enter the kingdom of God. And then he sees the apostles. They're astonished. And he says, Children, and it's another exclamation mark. Children, how hard is it for those that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? He explains it so clearly. And the apostles, it just goes, whoop. It says they were astonished out of measure. And they go, who can be saved? Who can go to heaven? Oh my goodness. If this guy can't go to heaven, look at all he's done. Look at all of his checklists. Look at how he's acted all of his life. This guy surely is going to heaven. And Jesus is over there going, good grief. They just don't get it. They just don't get it. What they didn't get was they forgot about Jesus, that He is the way, He is the truth, He is the life. And whether we're living in, in gross disobedience like Samson or like Saul or like, uh, uh, like uh, King, um, King Solomon laid in his life, whether we're living in gross disobedience does not take away the fact that God is our Savior, you see? That doesn't glorify the disobedience. If it glorifies the disobedience in your mind, then you've taken your emphasis off of the astonishment of the grace of God. If you sit there and you think, okay, well, if Solomon made it, if Saul made it, if the rich young ruler made it, if Samson made it, then I can go out and sin. Are you kidding me? <laughs> That's astonishing to me that anybody would think that. No, I'm astonished by the fact that Jesus looked at those disciples and he told them, he said, he said, I'm trying to explain to you, this is not about going to heaven. It's about being a disciple. And the, the apostle said, well, then who can be saved? And Jesus says, okay, okay, I'm finally going to give you a nugget. I'm finally going to let you understand, let you in on a little secret that I've been trying to broadcast publicly. And with men, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. <laughs> and that, that satisfied them. That was astonishing. Does it satisfy you? Does the teachings of Christ as it relates to citizenship in His kingdom, does it astonish you? It flattens me. Does the teachings of Christ as it relates to the worship of Him in His kingdom, does it astonish you? It flattens me out. Does the teachings of Christ as it relates to our eternal salvation as He related to the apostles, he said, with men, it's impossible. You can't get to, it's not possible for you to get to heaven on men or your man's merit or your merit. But with God, your salvation is a reality. It's just not a possibility, it's a reality. Amen. Aren't you happy? If you're looking for the truth, if you're trying to hold on to the truth, 
If you're seeking the rock, you will find it in the astonishing teachings of Jesus Christ that ultimately say he has all authority. And therefore, he deserves all glory. (laughs) One of the best ways that you can glorify him is to follow him in New Testament baptism. We give you that opportunity as we stand and sing.